So um, just a, a little introduction. Um, again, my name is Dennis McDaniel. I met Matt and Scott, uh, the other uh, uh, who is still pastoring at Calvary La Junta. Um, two years ago, 20, or actually it'd be almost three years ago in uh, summer 2021 at a conference in Denver. Uh, my wife and six kids and I were supposed to go to London, England uh, as missionaries with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, then this little bitty thing hit called COVID. Don't know if anybody's heard about it. Um, and the British government shut down their doors. And so we had already sold our house. And we were like, okay, now what, God? And so I met Matt and Scott. And they were like, well, you want to do church planning. And you want to do it in a foreign culture. Because where we were from, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, southern Indiana, Colorado is a foreign culture. And um, so um, they said, we have a church building in Los Animas that has no people, so we would love for you to come down to Los Animas and take over a church with no people. Um, so we said, okay, God, we'll go. And uh, it's funny because everybody from back in Kentucky and Indiana said, oh, you all are moving to Colorado for the mountains. The biggest mountain that we have in uh, southeast Colorado, um, we were actually joking with Matt and Betsy on Friday when we got up here. We said, your old view was much better. It was the La Junta landfill that is a topless mountain. So uh, there are no mountains in southeast Colorado. Uh, but we are gracious, and we, we have loved uh, our two years living here in Colorado and look forward to many, many more years. So. Uh, Acts chapter 21, verses 7 through uh, 14. When they had finished, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. He stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him under the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people were we urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. <clears throat> So to set our background here, um, Paul is, this is in Acts chapter 21. Acts has 28 chapters. The beginning of Acts and the end of Acts are well over 20 years apart in start dates. And so the first part of Acts we see is the birth of the church. Um, we see Peter leading the church and then we see the persecution come. Uh, through Paul, and uh, before he is saved, 
And then the last half of Acts is Paul, having been saved, then becomes a, a missionary to the Gentiles. And um, so the first missionary journey, they're sent out of Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, and young Mark, uh, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, goes with them. Mark abandons them at some point in the journey, um, likely because it got hard. And uh, Barnabas, when they finish their journey, uh, Paul and Barnabas split because Barnabas goes to minister to young Mark to encourage him to. Um, and then Paul is sent back out with Silas uh, for two more journeys. They go each time they go out, they go to the churches that they'd already planted and then they expand their territory. And so this is the end of the third missionary journey some 20 years later, after the original Pentecost, and Paul is desiring to be back in Jerusalem for that anniversary of Pentecost. And so um, they are coming back, and I'm going to jump back into Acts chapter 20 uh, to kind of set a little bit of the background. Um, Luke is a travel companion with Paul. Luke is the author of... Uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of the book of Acts and the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And an amazing thing that we see in the introduction in Luke chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 1, Luke says, I have undertaken this study to show you, O honorable Theophilus, and to tell you about all that Jesus did, that is in Luke 1, and then in Acts 1, and all that in from this point on, from his ascension and the birth of the church. And so we understand that Theophilus was probably a Roman in Roman government because of the way that Luke addresses him. And yet he has become a believer. And Luke is writing to this young believer to encourage him, to help him to become a mature believer. And a lot of what he's writing in, in Acts is very hard things that mature believers understand that we are going to have to go through in our Christian walk. And this is what he's telling young Theophilus. Now, the amazing thing is, by word count, Luke writes 27% of the New Testament to one man, Theophilus, to encourage him, to help him mature in his faith. Compare that to Paul. Paul writes 23% of the New Testament to equip the churches to know how to go forward with this thing. 23% written to the churches. 27% written to one man to equip him. This is what hard Christian life is going to look like. And so we know that Luke loved Theophilus. We know that Luke loved Paul, and now we get to see some of the stuff that he is writing to Theophilus about, about this hard life that we call Christianity. So if we hop back into Acts chapter 20, I'm going to read verses 16 through 25. For Paul had decided to sail past, and if anybody's wondering, I'm reading ESV, so Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might ha not have to spend time in Asia. 
for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And they came to him and he said, and said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. One of these young men is Timothy. Uh, Timothy is a pastor there at Ephesus. He's one of the elders. We know that from Paul's letter to Timothy, he dearly loves this young man. But not just Timothy. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. These are his family. They're not just friends, they're family. He has more in common with them than he does his own biological family who are apart from Christ. Christian DNA is much greater bond than familial DNA. And so Paul is brokenhearted. And our first point is that the Christian life demands that we are going to have to fight to honor God's leading over our own preferences. Paul at one time spent over three years living in Ephesus, building this church, starting this church, putting Timothy in as a pastor. Paul knew that his role was as a missionary, not to be there to, to pastor long term. He had a different calling than Timothy did. But yet, his, his, his very DNA of his Christian faith is bound tightly with these brothers in Ephesus. And he's sitting there telling them, some of you will never, ever, 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 ever see my face again because I know that I'm going to my death. Because this is what God wants for Christ to be made much of. For Paul, God is taking him to Jerusalem and eventually to Rome for Christ to be made much of. For Timothy, God is leaving him in Ephesus for Christ to be made much of. And Paul's personal preferences are I'm going to set aside my personal preferences because my life is nothing. Everything that is about me is to serve Jesus Christ. 
He knows that he is facing bad things. But he has decided that God's specific ministry for him was more important even than his own life. He was being given more than what he could handle. I'm sure we have all heard somebody say, God won't give you more than what you can handle. And that is just false. Um, In fact, the people that say that usually mean it well. They usually say it in a time where, man, life is just falling apart. I've just lost a spouse. I've gotten a cancer diagnosis. I've lost a child. And someone well-meaning will say, well, God won't give you more than what you can handle. And obviously, God thinks that you can handle this. It's actually a, a, a misrepresentation of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll hop over there real quick and read verses 9 through 14. Authored humanly by Paul under the guidance of the Holy, uh, of the Holy Spirit. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So what this is a reference to is this is a reference to Israel when they had come out of Egypt, and they were in the wilderness, and they were griping and complaining, and they were hating God, and they were ready to do in Moses, and they were ready to go back to Egypt. Now, it's amazing, sometimes when we are distanced from hard times, we get rose-colored glasses, and maybe we think that the hard times weren't as hard as they actually were. And so, in their moaning and complaining and griping, God sent them snakes. And God sent them, he told Moses, he said, this is their salvation. I want you to put a bronze serpent up on a pole. Now imagine what kind of an image would a bronze serpent up on a pole make. Because if you don't have a crossbar, the serpent's not going to sit up there. And so God is already providing a means of a cross in the wilderness for Egypt that if they will look upon this measure of salvation, the snake bites won't kill them. But those who do not, and those who try to do it in their own strength, will die. Look at my means of salvation or die. And so this is what Moses does. He crafts a bronze serpent, puts it up on a pole, and those that look at it are saved, and those that don't die from the snakes. And then Paul goes on to say there, don't be idol worshipers. Don't think that you can do it in your own strength. And also, don't make this thing an idol. And actually, that's what they do. Uh, Later, much, much later, um, once Israel is established, they actually have to go in and destroy that bronze serpent on the pole because Israel had made it 
an idol. So as we hop back to our text in Acts, we realize that Paul understands this is not something he is doing in his own strength. And this is only through the strength of the Holy Spirit who is giving him the strength to do the hard things, to go against his own preferences. In verse 32, he actually says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul goes on to tell the elders at Ephesus that when I leave, you know what's going to happen? Wolves are going to come in. And they're going to try to devour the flock. And Paul knows that this is a church that, that he, he started. And he knows that when he leaves, that there are going to be ravenous wolves who come in and try to destroy the flock. And I'm sure his personal preferences would be, I could stay here and help defend this church. Or, I can go where suffering and imprisonment and beatings await me for the glory of Christ. And you tell me, Paul is not this superhuman, you know, Paul is a human being just like us. Paul had emotions, and I guarantee you, Paul is wrestling with fighting his personal preferences over that which he is called to do for the glory of Christ. And we read the response of the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 36 and 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that he would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This wasn't just Paul being stoic and the elders at Ephesus weeping. Paul was weeping with them. Paul's heart was breaking because what God was calling him to do was different than his own preferences. Our second point today, the Christian life demands that we are going to have to fight against others' desires for our physical safety, if that's contrary to God's will. We see then as they go into Acts chapter 21, Luke tells us that they arrive in Tyre, and Paul again calls for the, uh, the elders at Tyre to come to say a final farewell to. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. And then we get to our main text again in 7 through 14, which I'll read again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, 
Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. In verse 20, they warned him through the Spirit. The Spirit told him what was going to happen, and they warned him through the Spirit. Uh, Entire, they warned him through the Spirit what was going to happen. In Caesarea at Philip's house, Agabus, through the Holy Spirit, warns him what's going to happen. Paul is constrained by the Holy Spirit. I must go. So let's ask this question. Is the Holy Spirit confused? No. The Holy Spirit is not confused. What we have here is the Holy Spirit is simply revealing what is about to take place. Paul is going to endure persecution and suffering and be in bondage and be beaten. And ultimately, he's eventually going to die as a prisoner. And the Holy Spirit is warning Paul this is going to happen, but compelling him nonetheless, this is where you have to go. The Holy Spirit is also warning Paul's beloved friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what's going to happen. And the Holy Spirit gives them strength to let Paul go. Paul knows that it is better to be in great physical harm but being smack dab in the middle of the will of God for his life. Paul knows that it's better to go to Jerusalem than to be in the belly of a whale. And what we see here is Paul is looking through glasses of a lens of, I want whatever God wants for God's glory and for Christ to be made much of. His beloved friends and brothers and sisters in Christ are looking at us through a lens of, we don't want to see our beloved brother suffer the way he's going to have to suffer. And their response is not sinful. Their response is human. They don't want to see Paul have to go through this. Paul doesn't want to see Paul have to go through this. But Paul also says, my life is of nothing. I want to serve Jesus Christ at all costs. Our third point is that the Christian life demands that we are going to have to fight against ourselves to do hard things. Most of us, and I'm going to probably extend that to all of us, all of us are not going to get what Paul and the leaders at the church at Ephesus and the leaders at the church at Tyre and the folks in Philip's house get. The Holy Spirit literally is laying out Paul's future and he's showing multiple people what will happen. None of us are going to probably ever get that in this life, that, that the Holy Spirit is going to tell us this and this and this 
and this and then your death. We have to manage day by day, living the Christian life, having already established in our heart, I'm going to have to do the hard things. Do I do the hard things? It, it, it's easy in easy times to do what's right. It's the difficult is to do what's right, to honor Christ in hard times. And we have to fight against ourselves. We have to be resolved, resolute, that I am going to honor Christ no matter what comes my way. And we see this, and we so appreciate Paul showing us by that example. He acknowledges that everything that... that that they are experiencing losing him is just as heartbreaking for him. It's not an easy decision. It's not just a flippant, eh, I'll leave y'all here. He clearly understands that his death is a very real possible outcome. In fact, Paul goes to Jerusalem. And like he does in every city that he goes to, he goes first to the Jews and they reject him, and then he goes to the Gentiles. Sometimes they reject him with beatings, sometimes stoning, sometimes nothing. This time in Jerusalem, they, they, they bind him, they arrest him, they want to kill him. In fact, he's under Roman guard. His nephew finds out the plot to kill him, and the Roman he's actually placed in the barracks with the Roman guard. And Paul says, you know what, I'm a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, I have rights. And this is a sham of a trial, but I appeal to Caesar. Take me to Rome. And so Jesus actually later in Acts tells Paul that he is immortal until he gets to Rome. Because Jesus tells Paul, you will testify about me in Rome. And so the very ticket that Jesus uses to get Paul to Rome is Paul's declaration that I am a Roman citizen. Take me to Rome as a prisoner. And we see through the rest of Acts that they're shipwrecked. They get to Rome. Paul spends a couple years as a prisoner in Rome. And then Paul is killed for his faith. But for some of us, it is actually a very great thing that Paul gets to Rome. When I, one of the times I was in London before we moved there, um, I got to see some Roman ruins that are dated from around 100, 200 A.D. with Christian inscriptions on these Roman ruins. You know how they got there? Roman soldiers. You know how Roman soldiers came to know Christ? Roman soldiers were jailers of Paul in Rome. And so any of us that have any European heritage ought to be very grateful that God takes Paul to Rome as a prisoner because our ancestors get the gospel likely from people who were chained with Paul. 
who were converted because Paul spent two years preaching to them. And then they take the gospel and they keep spreading the gospel as they go out, as they're redeployed to, to Britain or to other places. And so while it was heartbreak for those at Ephesus and those at Tyre and those at Caesarea and for Paul, Christ is made much of through Paul's imprisonment and through Paul's suffering because Paul was given the ability through the Holy Spirit to fight, to do hard things. And so as we close today, we hear the words echoed from Jesus. Not my will, but your will be done. We hear these words echoed from Paul in the same vein. Not my will, but your will be done. And it's a rallying cry for us today in 2024. We don't know what the future holds, but Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Again, as we look and, and summarize our, our three points again, first, we're going to have to fight to honor God's will over our own preferences. What does this look like for us personally? Do you identify more with what you do, or do you identify yourself by whom you serve? That will tell us are you willing to do the hard things? Because if you identify by whom you serve, we'll have the same response as Paul did. My life is nothing. I want to serve you at all costs. What will that look like for the life of this church at Calvary Monte Vista? Are there more people here that are being discipled and making disciples themselves and living life together in Christian life than there were five years ago. I don't know that. I don't know the history. I know a little bit of what Matt shared, but what is it going to look like for the life here in the church if we fight to do the hard things and fight to honor Christ and make him known versus our own preferences? To summarize our second point, we're going to have to fight against others' desires for our safety if that is contrary to God's plan. Again, the safest place that we could be, even if it brings physical harm to us, is smack dab in the middle of God's will. That's the safest place that we can be. When we moved, uh, before we moved to uh, Los Animas, uh, we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and um, we had a friend who had come home uh, from overseas and had was, was uh, heading up a ministry in Louisville, Kentucky to refugees and immigrants. And he said, Dennis, I have the perfect ministry opportunity for you. He said, we need you to go live in a government housing complex with your family and live as incarnational missionaries um, in this government housing project, there are 350 units. 75% of these units are refugees and immigrants. Oh, and by the way, the Louisville Police Department will not enter this housing complex without at least two units. Um, our children 
got to experience people blowing up cars, um, dumpsters. Um, Fourth of July was, uh, I'm talking like battle PTSD. Um, uh, it was it was chaos. There were um, a lot of bad things that took place there in that public housing. And I remember people saying, well, that's not a safe place to take your children. And we're like, if this is where God's calling us, it's the safest place that we could be. We literally, now this was, this was dumb, dumb, dumb on my behalf. So one night, um, and, and the, the sad part was it wasn't really the refugees and immigrants who were the problem people. And so one night in the alley behind our unit, these were row houses, and um, these two cars pull up, and eight young men are in these cars, and these are young men who are gang-affiliated and doing a whole bunch of bad stuff. And uh, I think I had to preach in the morning, and it was, I don't know, way too early for them to be doing bad stuff in the alley. And uh, my wife was working overnight at the hospital, and so I didn't have a voice of wisdom to tell me to not do what I was about to do. So I walked out um, to their vehicles, and I did not bring my firearm with me, probably a good thing. And I put my hands on their windows, and I stuck my head in the window of one of the cars, and I said, hey, young man, this is a neighborhood with a lot of little children, and it is way, 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 way late, and I need you guys to leave. And, and there was some absolute shock on their faces that I was approaching them. And so they just kind of like, and then I saw some movement and they were like, you better get up out of here. And about that point, I realized I probably should have just stayed in my bed. Uh, by God's grace and by my stupid ignorance, nothing happened to me. But two nights later on the news, those two vehicles were identified as drive-by shooting uh, vehicles um, in a neighborhood that was right next to our neighborhood. And, um, but we were where God had us. And we were doing ministry with kids, even in Muslim context, who would come over every Sunday night at our house or at our, our unit, and we would have s'mores and we would do oral Bible studying. And there were times when we had 25, 30 Muslim children sitting there listening to the gospel stories being told in oral. And most of these people come from oral cultures. The safest place you can ever be is smack dab in the middle of God's will for you, even if it is harmful probably to your physical body. Thirdly, to summarize our third final point, we're going to have to fight against ourselves to do the hard things. It's easy to sit back and say, you know what, Pastor Matt's going to reach my neighbors. Pastor Matt's going to, he's going to, he's going to go across the world. Or he's going to go here locally to people that have a different worldview than me and have a different culture than me to share the gospel, or he's going to go to my coworkers and my family who hate me because I love Jesus Christ and I need to tell them about Jesus. We have to fight to do those hard things. We have to fight to look 
and honor Christ in our life no matter what the cost. What will it look like if we all start becoming more kingdom-minded and less selfish with our time and our talents and our 20s, even if, like Paul, it means the end of time of air coming in and out of our lungs and our heart beating. We have a hard challenge as Christians. It's not an easy, like I said, it's easy to praise God when everything is good. The true measure of Christianity is when we see God being glorified in just the hardest times. Don over here, his brother Alex, uh, is actually a member of Calvary Lahana Church. And Alex, not too long ago, had to have, he thought was just going to be an amputated toe, and it ended up being an amputated below his knee leg in Pueblo. My wife and I went up to visit Alex in the hospital thinking, well, we're going to bring him encouragement. We're going to bring him some word of God. And he's sharing his faith with the nurses and doctors. And it would have been real easy for Alex to throw a pity party, and I lost my leg, and things aren't going well, and I've got infections, and my body's trying to reject everything. And yet, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his all the things going on, Alex is sharing the gospel with his nurses and his doctors. I, almost every day, I get a Bible uh, verse from Alex. He just had to go back to the hospital for 13 more days. We have to fight to do the hard things. And the great thing is, is we're not fighting in our own strength. The Holy Spirit equips us to do those very things that he calls us to do. So, if you would, bow with me in prayer.